Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's survival show. Episode 182, I believe. And this is a great interview coming up. I think you're really going to love this. You know, it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have. Wherever you are, I think that's the mark of a good survivalist, right? They do what they can with whatever they have at hand, wherever they happen to be. And so I got a chance to interview a gentleman who goes by the name of White Bear. And he is a primitive living skills instructor. Now, by the title of this show, you know, I called it primitive living skills. Well, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with common modern day survival? I'll leave you to be the judge on that. Mr. White Bear talks about some pretty good stuff in this interview. Uh, he joined me by Skype from Western Montana, where he teaches primitive living skills. And you know what's really cool? He lives this stuff. He lives this kind of a lifestyle. He doesn't just teach it. He actually lives it. I like people like that. You know, those are the kinds of people that are actually living it that seem to have the best information to share. So, without any further ado, let's get right to the interview on primitive living skills. Here you go. My special guest for this episode is White Bear, joining us from Western Montana. How's it going, Bear? Good, Bob. How you doing? Good. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a primitive living skills instructor, correct? Yes, I teach primitive living skills and wilderness survival. That's great. I've never had a guest on the show that, that teaches those types of skills, and it's going to be great for my listeners to hear. You're in a beautiful part of the country out there. Yes, it is. It's it's getting rather warm out here. It's been in the mid-50s, and the snow is melting at a rapid pace, but uh, yes, it is a very beautiful part of the country. Uh, West Yellowstone, right? Yes. Good. And for those of you listening to this, he goes by White Bear on today's Survival Show Forum. So as usual, I'm going to start a thread about this episode, so there might be some people that will ask you some questions. That's great. Well, for the average survivalist, for the average prepper, that might not be real familiar with, uh, with primitive living skills, just kind of briefly explain what it is, what you teach, and why it's important for people to know. Well, there's, there's a big advent of survival instructors, uh, not only on the web, but you know, just out there in general, that teach people how to prepare by taking what they need with them to survive. And my philosophy is is that you might be in a situation where you don't have any gear or you don't have other than what's available in Mother Nature to sustain and survive. So my, I come from the point of view where I want to show you what is out there that will help you to sustain and survive. Because most survival uh, scenarios are 72 hours, and most people can make adequate use of what's in Mother Nature to su- sustain and survive for those 72 hours. Yeah, that's very true. And as a lot of people know, you know, one of my mottos on this program is do what you can with what you have wherever you are. And you and I were chatting briefly before this interview. Sometimes people find themselves in a situation where that's exactly what they have to do, right? They got to they got to do with do what they can with whatever they have. Exactly. One of the key scenarios that I use is you could be on an air, airline flight from Boston to LA and crash over the Rocky Mountains. And the plane could be completely obliterated where you may not be able to have any of the things that you had in your luggage or anybody else had. 
So you may have to do with whatever you can scavenge what is left of the plane or whatever you find in Mother Nature. And that's a key element that people don't seem to realize. Uh, a second scenario is I, I have come across many people who are out on day hikes or weekend hikes and they've lost their backpack uh, and they're screwed because they have nothing available other than what is on their person and what they find around them. Yeah, there's also scenarios of people that take their vehicle out into the wilderness and for some reason they're separated from their vehicle where all their supplies are. Exactly, exactly. Uh, many, many hunters, uh, you know, I, I'm a hunter and I know many hunters who have died literally 250 yards from their vehicle because they got lost, did not have the proper supplies and did not have the proper knowledge to use what was around them to survive. So they died 250 yards from a vehicle. That's, that's sad. That's sad. That's sad. So you teach people how to uh, survive with what they have. So give us a couple of examples. Give us some things that we can chew on after listening to you on this podcast. Well, you know, the key element to sustaining is, number one, fire. And that doesn't matter if it's spring, summer, winter, fall. You need fire. Not only is it a huge psychological advantage for survival, which survival is 90% psychological, 10% physical, but also hydration. And there are many ways to get hydrated, even if you don't have, say, a river or stream near you. There are many plants and trees where you can access water, things of that nature. So fire, you know, starting a fire, knowing how to start it with the resources around you and how to get hydrated and stay hydrated, those are the two key elements. If someone doesn't have a lot of fire-making equipment with them, what, what do you teach them? Uh, the basic thing I teach them is, is how to, a hand drill, which a lot of people say, well, that is a very hard skill to master, and it is. But if you know how to, you know how to properly use and make a hand drill set, use it, and start a fire, then a bow drill is easier. Another one is a fire plow, which I show people, which is a little easier than a, a hand drill. But, you know, if you know how to use those skills, you can pretty much start a fire wherever you are. Yeah, makes me think of Cody Lundeen. He's always really good at starting fires. Yes, and, and that's, that's one of the things that my uncle, when, who taught me when I was eight years old, he taught me how to start primitive fires. That's one of the key elements he instilled in me is how to start a fire. If you have the skills to do it, you can start it with anything. So those, those are key elements that people need to understand. Do you produce any videos on this stuff? I actually do. I have a Living Wild video book. It's an 11-chapter video book. It's one video per chapter on all the techniques that I teach and things that I show. And as a matter of fact, I'm reproducing it right now in high definition and going to re-release it next month. Cool. When it's released, where will people be able to find it? Uh, they can go to my website, which is uh, plsslivingwild.webs.com, and click on the link for the Living Wild video book, and it'll give them some information about it, and they can reserve their copy if they want. Give me that web address again real quick. It's plsslivingwild.webs.com. .webs. Dot com. Okay, I just went to it and I bookmarked it, and I'll make that a link on the forum for this episode. So, uh, folks, if you want to read more about that, go to the forum, check the links for this episode, and there'll be a link to his page there. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I want to get, get you exposure as much as possible. So, all right, so starting fire, we talked about that. It's important to know how to do that. And, and you know what? I mean, it doesn't matter 
where you are and what happens to you, you're probably at some point going to have to learn how to start a fire. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I want people to understand that what you, what you read in a lot of books, it, it's real nice to read a nice, well-printed book. What you read in books and what you see on TV, a lot of times is embellished for the sake of selling books and, and selling viewership so people will watch a show. What really happens in real life a lot of times is completely different than what you see in either one of those mediums. So, you know, fire, while it is sometimes difficult if you're in a, a you know, a rainforest area in the Pacific Northwest where you have soaked wood, it is still possible to find the resources to make fire. And even if you can't get a shelter, you can get a fire, you can survive because fire can keep you warm and it can provide a lot of other essential necessities. So, you know, if you can't get a fire, then, of course, shelter would be your next best thing to do, which I teach people how to build shelters as well. But fire and hydration are the two key elements for any survival situation. I mean, I've I've been all over the country, and I've been to certain spots in the world, and I, I have been out and, and literally trained myself to survive in all the different topographies around the U.S. I've been to Peru, Australia, and a few other places, and it, it's really key to know fire making as one of your first basic elements to surviving yeah well and not only does it keep you warm it's a source of cooking exactly cooking if you do get hydration or get water you can boil water you know there's a lot of different ways to do it you know so yeah fire is a key is a real key element people don't understand that a lot of people you know you read uh, a lot of blogs or you see on youtube or in books you know oh you need a knife and you need this and you know you can always make a knife, you can always find a container for water, you can always find a different way to hydrate, but fire is, is a key element that, that I really stress that people need to learn. You know, it's amazing when you look at people's emergency kits or their bug out bags or whatever name that you want to give them, or you see people get on the internet and they post a list of what they have, it, it, it seems like there's some people that actually omit fire making equipment, which just blows my mind. Right, well, you know, I get a lot of uh, inquiries from people, especially through my YouTube channel, that ask me about you know the fire making aspect. And a lot of people tend to um, be what I call armchair quarterbacks with survival. They they you know they don't have any anecdotal knowledge, but they have a lot of theoretical knowledge. But you know if you get out there and you really do it, you you really learn quickly what is important and what isn't. So. Yeah, a lot of people admit fire making because they think, oh, I can go out, I've seen it on TV, I can go out and I can grab a piece of wood and rub it with another piece of wood and I can start a fire. But, you know, you need to know the types of materials to use, what kind of wood works the best, you know, different things and different factors of where to gather wood depending on if there's a lot of humidity or if there's a lot of moisture from rain or whatever. You know, it changes. The variables are, are completely different, you know, every time you go out because one day is not the same as the next. I've always wondered what kind of wood does work better for starting a fire if you're going to rub two sticks together. Well, for the for the drill, a soft pithy wood that will produce a lot of smoke and and uh, you know, little fine ember material that will that will coagulate into an ember that you can blow into uh, a tinder pile and make a fire uh, against a hardwood base that will produce enough friction for that to happen. Yeah. Okay. Do you also teach how to find stuff to eat in the wild? Yeah, I, I go through wild edibles, you know, and I go through, you know, the, the basic with uh, insects and whatnot. I, I don't, I'm not a big 
proponent of going out and finding insects. I mean, while they are simple to find, um, most people think that, you know, it's, it's, well, hey, I just go and I rip open a piece of dead wood and I find a bunch of maggots. But sometimes that can actually make you more hungry than you were before not eating at all. And, you, you know, you see, uh, especially on a lot of survival shows, and I get asked a lot about, you know, what I think about a lot of survival shows. And one of the things I want to say is I don't watch TV and I don't watch a lot of those kind of shows. Good for you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've watched them, so I get some, you know, background when people ask me questions. But, you know, again, like I said, most survival scenarios are 72 hours, and at the most they might last a week. Um, you know, there have been some extreme cases where people have been out two, maybe three weeks. But even at that, you can survive because most people have enough body fat that they can live off the reserves of their body. I mean, unless they're like, a, you know, an Olympic athlete that has like 2% body fat, you know, you, you can sustain. And, and so food is not a top priority. But, yes, I do go through some of, uh, like, if, you know, someone were out there and they get a headache, you can take the inside of willow bark and, and suck on it, and that, that's basically aspirin that will help relieve, you know, some swelling and some headaches and things of that nature. So I do go through some of the medicinal plants and edible plants and, you know, different things like that. But I also do show how to snare animals, trap animals, uh, you know, things along those lines as well. Well, a lot of us who are into prepping and survivalists, we also like to go outdoors. I love to go outdoors. Uh, I'm thinking about getting more active into hunting again. And a lot of us like to do those types of things. I grew up pretty much... Uh, in the outdoors as much as I could. I spent more time outside. It seems like the only time I ever went indoors was to go to sleep. So what what should people who like to spend time outdoors or, or if they're going to go outdoors more, what should they be thinking about? Well, the, the one thing, and I, I just made a video that I'm going to be uploading on my YouTube channel uh, because I've been getting a lot of uh, emails and comments from people and private messages that there's been a big influx of young people in their in their early 20s and even late teens that are going out with nothing more than say a knife and trying to survive for two three four weeks at a time and i don't advocate anybody going out without supplies take your tent take some water take a knife you know take fire starting materials take things that you know how to use but while you're out there practice your primitive living skills practice your survival with the primitive technology but if that fails then at least you have a backup so that you're not going to be a statistic in the newspaper a week from now um, you know practicing is key practice in your backyard before you even go in the woods because that's a, that's a key way you know go to the go to the local woods grab some materials to make a, a bow drill set or make a hand drill set or even a fly, fire plow set and practice at home Get it going, get it started, know what you're doing, know how to get an ember. You know, that's a, a, a big part of starting fire is people put too big a wood on too little heat and it snuffs it out. People don't realize that you have to build up an ember base, get the heat before you start adding bigger wood. So peop, my thing is practice, but take your supplies with you that you do know how to use. Take your little propane stove or butane stove, you know, take food with you. Don't think that, because I, I know people that'll go out and they'll eat bugs and they'll literally get deathly ill because they've eaten the wrong thing or maybe the bugs didn't agree with them. Um, just because it's prevalent in most cultures for people to eat bugs, you have to understand they've grown up on those. They've, you know, so they're accustomed to them. Sometimes bugs can, can cause people to be very sick and get ill or be, or be allergic to them. Yeah, a lot of those people don't know what they're what they're doing. 
Exactly. So, you know, just be like, again, like I said, just because you see a YouTube video or you see a TV show that shows people doing this doesn't mean that you can just run out into the wilds for, you know, three, five, seven, nine, twelve days and just do like what you see these videos and TV shows doing. Practice what you need. You know, and if you don't own a skill, that skill could kill you. So you need to own your skills before you go out and try to apply them in, into a survival situation. I think it's silly for people to try to go out into the woods and survive for a couple of weeks with nothing but a knife. Yeah, and, and I, I know I've seen a lot of you know a lot of influx of young people doing this. You know, they you know they watch movies like Rambo or Red Dawn or things of that nature, and they think, oh, I can do the same thing. You know, <laughs> that that that's Hollywood. You know, I mean that that's Hollywood. That's, that, they, it's made for entertainment. It's made to to look good, but that's not reality, and that's not real life. It's not practical. No, it's not practical at all. And, and I, you know, with me, I, I go barefoot, and I've been going barefoot now for 11 years, and I get a lot of people that, you know, will write to me and say, oh, you know, it's the middle of winter, and I've decided I'm going to go out and, and uh, try to live for a weekend, you know, with no shoes. And I write them back, and I say, don't do that. Take your shoes, take your socks. You know, you're not used to it. You're not acclimated to it. Take your shoes and boots and socks and wear them. If you want to take them off for a little while and try to get your feet acclimated to it, that's fine. But don't go out there thinking that you can do what I do because I've been doing this, you know, for 11 years. So, you know, people see this and I, I, I just I think they get the idea that, well, if you can do it, then I can do it. But it took me a long time to get used to doing it that way. Why do you go barefoot? Well, uh, the main reason I go barefoot is because... Uh, Physically and uh, health-wise, it's much better for us to go barefoot than to wear shoes. Um, it's been proven that the Anasazi, who were the original native peoples of North America, had better musculoskeletal systems, better um, health, and better feet than what we have today. And I learned this the hard way. Um, I, As a child growing up, I was barefoot almost all summer long. But in the wintertime, of course, my, my mother made me wear shoes, and I had to because, you know, going to school and society and everything, that's what you did. Right. But 2001, I went to Australia, and I was over there a month, and I spent three weeks of that month uh, living with two different Aboriginal tribes, and they walked barefoot. And I had this nice pair of Scarpa $250 custom-made, custom-fitted hiking boots, and they walk 15 to 20 miles a day searching for food and water. Now, the ground over there, a lot of it is like sandy soil, like going to the beach. And I was used to walking on hard packed ground, you know, here in the States, walking 15 to 18 miles a day. But over there, it made it exponentially harder because of the soil. So uh, I would have to take frequent rest breaks uh, about every two to three hours because my knees would get sore, my hips, my lower back. And one of the uh, one of the tribal members said, "Why don't you take your boots off and try walking that way?" So I tried it just in my socks, and it was way too hot because it gets very, the the soil gets very hot over there in the you know in the midday sun. So one of the women in the tribe made me a pair of leather harachis that I put on, and I could walk very comfortable. They they moved with my feet; they were very flexible, but they protected my feet from the heat. And I started to walk with them, and I didn't have to stop and take rest breaks anymore. And by the last four days of my trip there I was able to walk with them barefoot because I had started walking in the early morning and, and late afternoon walking barefoot to get acclimated to the temperatures and by the last four days I was able to do it without anything and at that point I realized that being barefoot was the best way to go and, and I've never looked back and I my body I don't have any more problems with hips legs joints you know my, my lower back my hips my knees none of that is bother me anymore so 
Uh, I don't have I don't have shoelaces to worry about. I don't have to worry about getting my feet wet. I don't have to worry about you know any of that stuff. Really? Well, how do you keep them warm? Um, well, my body, you know, as as you get acclimated to it, your body starts producing more heat. Uh, the mitochondria, which are little organelles within the cells, start producing more heat. And that when your body produces more heat, then you become warmer and you can stay warmer. Um, even in the wintertime, now there's times when it gets down, you know, in the in the minus 30s or whatnot, if the wind is blowing, that I might have to put on one pair of wool socks. But that's all I have to wear, and I'm comfortable, the, the, you know, the whole day I'm out. No kidding. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, I, and I, you know, people don't believe me, but I, I, I really have witnesses that have seen me in town walking literally in minus 34 degree weather from uh, my buddy's house to the store with no shoes and... You know, they're just completely awestruck thinking I'm going to get frostbite uh, and things of that nature. But people don't realize that that frostbite happens from putting your foot into a boot that your foot sweats. See, my feet don't sweat. They don't sweat Mm -hmm. in the summer. They don't sweat in the winter. Mm -hmm. But when your foot sweats and that that moisture stays on, what it starts doing is freezing from within side your toes and inside your foot. Exactly. That's what what causes frostbite. So, yeah, I I don't get frostbite the way I walk. You know... I'm just having a hard time wrapping my brain around that. I mean, you're not the first person that I've heard say that barefoot's better. And it makes sense because if you look at the way that we're built as humans, you know, why do we have the feet shaped the way they are and with the bones and the muscular structure the way that they are? That's the way we were intended to walk. Exactly. And 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 99% of the people out there walk incorrectly to begin with. They walk with a heel strike and then bring in the ball of the foot down, which is incorrect. We are meant to walk where... We either bring the foot down flat, where the ball of the foot just touches first, and then the heel comes down, or you bring the toe down first, roll onto the ball, and then the heel. Heel striking first actually creates a lot of problems with the, your knees, your, your hips, your lower back, and your shoulders. And going barefoot, do you naturally learn to walk the correct way, or did you have to train yourself? Uh, actually, well, I did have to train myself in the beginning. I had to be consciously aware, but it, it, it happens so quickly that it just becomes a natural way to walk. Really? So you don't you don't go heel first once you start walking barefoot, huh? No, no. If you ever watch a baby walk, a baby's they always walk where they land either on the outside of their foot or flat-footed. They don't heel strike. That's something that comes with the advent of wearing shoes. Yeah, makes sense. You know, I have a lot of foot problems, and you know, and my doctor tells me the opposite. He says, "Don't walk barefoot. Make sure you always have some kind of support on." Well, you see, and, and that's that's another fallacy. Um, I have a good friend that is a, a podiatrist, and he's been to Boston University where he's done some studies, and it's a fallacy that where the where that supposed arch in your foot is needs to be supported. That's actually like a a, a shock absorber, a cushion for the foot. That's mm-hmm. supposed to contract and expand as you walk. That's what you know gives us, the, when we're walking barefoot, that's what kind of gives you the, the padding so that you're not striking your foot down hard. So needing to have an arch support, that, that really is something that uh, came to be with the advent of podiatrists and you know, things of that nature. But really, you, know, you don't have to have that. People get so accustomed to it, though, that it is hard for them to go without because that tendon in the bottom of the foot doesn't get the chance to stretch if you have real high arches or high orthotics in a shoe that tendon never gets to stretch so if you ever do walk barefoot it hurts because your tendon's trying to stretch so it takes a little time to get that tendon stretched back out so do you think that 
some of those shoes, like those Vibram Five Fingers, uh, makes big difference? They, they do make a big difference, uh, but one of the problems that I've heard from people that wear those is they're getting foot fungus between their toes from where yeah. those five fingers fit between their toes. Yeah. Um, a, a good way to do it is to find, uh, like in the, in the Middle East, because it's very hot, the, the soil is very hot there, they wear those leather hirachis, that it's just a thin piece of leather with a couple of straps that secure them to their foot so they can walk naturally, but yet they still have a little bit of protection. That's the... If people want to try to go barefoot, I say go for it. I mean, don't try to go out in the middle of winter like I do and start then. You need to start when the, 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 you know, like in the spring when the temperatures are mild. Get, let your feet get hardened to it, but get a pair of the real thin leather hirachis and wear those. Get used to it, and then transition into the barefoot if you want. Some people can't ever walk barefoot because the skin on their feet just aren't uh, – they just can't tolerate it. But if you even wear the leather hirachis, it makes a huge difference in the way you walk and how, how much better you'd feel uh, physically and, and how much better it is for you medically. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that because when you told me that you went barefoot, I thought I've got I to gotta get him to talk about that, and thank you very much for doing that. Oh, not a problem. That's, I mean, I, you know, I try to educate people because it's, it, I, to me it's, it's become a very important point is, you know, a lot of uh, – uh, a lot of mental uh, hindrances and medical hindrances uh, do stem from wearing shoes, believe it or not. Yeah, I mean knee problems and hip problems and back problems and things like that, right? Right, right. I, I have a, a friend that's a chiropractor, and he used to adjust me years ago. And uh, one of the problems was I, I always used to wear cowboy boots. And I would wear them to the point, because I liked them so much, that I would wear them that they would be literally falling apart, and they were so broken in. And one of the things he told me at that point is he says, you need some new boots because when, when people walk, they don't realize that the soles and the outsoles and insoles of their shoes break down and wear down. Mm-hmm. So, so everybody pronates or supinates when they walk. And depending on how your foot rolls, that, that part of your shoe wears down. And as it wears down more, it exacerbates the way you walk and exacerbates any problems that you have with your knees, hips, lower back, or shoulders. True. So that's why that's why people have so many back problems and joint problems is because they're they're walking on shoes that you know are now broken down too far and making problems even worse and actually makes you more tired throughout the day than it does make you feel better. So even those of us who don't go barefoot, I guess a lesson in what you just talked about is keep good quality shoes on your feet and don't let them wear out too much. Exactly. You know that's. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of people that look at me and they think that, you know, the, the old fallacy is, well, you know, it, it's, it's health law that you must wear footwear no matter where you go. And actually, there is no law in any one of the states in this country, in any 50, and I have letters from all 50 states, that says there is no health law saying that you must wear footwear in any establishment. Now, that's not to say that the individual business owner can't request you wear footwear. They have the right to do that. But there is no health law stating that you must wear footwear. And one of the things that I educate people on is the fact most people buy a pair of shoes and they wear those same shoes day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time you might find a difference is if you have like a business executive that wears dress shoes during the week and then tennis shoes on the weekend. But for the most part, most people wear the same shoes. Now, what they don't understand is the inside of those shoes are so filled with bacteria and germs because – you know, that footwear absorbs whatever comes from the outside. It, it's absorbing all the sweat and perspiration from your body. So there's 
shoes have a lot more germs and bacteria than my feet will ever have because I wash my feet daily. And I watch where I walk. I don't walk through feces. I don't walk through, you know, people who spit gum on the sidewalk. I don't walk through any of that kind of stuff. I, I watch where I walk. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I walk slower to pay attention to where I'm walking. So, you know, the health problem to me would be people walking into a place with those dirty, nasty shoes versus my clean feet. Very good point. You know what? That's a very good point. Shoes attract all kinds of stuff. Exactly. And, and how many people wash their shoes even once a week? <laughs> no. Not, yeah, none that I know. I mean, some people might wash like canvas sneakers, you know, maybe once a year or twice a year. But most people have leather shoes. You can't wash them in the washer. And people aren't going to spend the time to hand wash them. So, you know, it's it's not that hard to figure out when you realize what's in those shoes that I'd rather walk barefoot than put my foot back into a shoe like that ever again. And if you think about all the stuff that's on our shoes that we end up bringing into our house. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I pointed it out to some friends of mine a few years ago that had, that had an infant, and they had carpeting in their house, in a nice plush carpeting, and they couldn't figure out why it was getting dirty so easily. And I said, well, you're wearing your shoes in the house, and then you're letting your baby crawl around in what you're tracking in the house in that carpeting. And they really gave him pause for thought. Well, ever since then... They, they take their shoes off outside before they ever come in the house. So that's not just for uh, cleanliness uh, reasons. It's also for health reasons. Exactly. It's absolutely a, a big health reason, yeah. Interesting. All right, well, let's get off. That, that's very, very good, though, Bear. Thanks for sharing that. That's, I just learned something there. Um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's move on to the next subject. What else? Uh, again, think about a newbie. Think about somebody who's not into primitive living. Uh, what else should they start to learn to do um a good thing to practice uh one of the things that i, I tell people you know a, a key element to take with you is like a, a tarp you know you, uh, a lot of people like to take tents which is great but uh you know even tents can be um soaked with rain and water where a, a tarp if you get one of those polyethylene tarps they generally will retard water much better than most of the tents out there and they're much smaller and lightweight and start learning how to how to build like lean tos out of a tarp. You know, practice with that. Um, you know, different types of shelter configurations with a tarp. Takes you know a lot of people are into carrying the paracord, which is great. Um, I, I like to teach people. You know, get them started on learning how to make cordage out there because you might not have any cord with you or any kind of rope. So you might need to make your own cordage for different things. Um, those are things that people can practice in their own backyard or when they go to the family campground. You know, you can take go go find some stalks of willow because willow is one of the most prevalent plants in North America. Strip some bark off of some willow branches and start learning how to uh, twist cordage, you know, make cordage out of willow. And, uh, you know, just all those kind of things that, you know, in the event that where the, as I've heard you say, the crap hits the fan, you ever needed to have those skills, you'll have them before it ever happens. Do you have any videos that teach people how to make some cordage out of willow? Uh, actually, I do have one that I just reshot that I'm going to be posting uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be heading to a, a town that has much better Internet connection, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be uploading uh, quite a few videos. i got about six in all that I'm going to be uploading. Give out the name of your YouTube channel. Uh, YouTube.com slash Primitive Living. YouTube.com slash Primitive Living. Yes. Okay, good. And uh, I'm going to check that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put that link in the show notes as well so people can look at what you've already got up there. Yeah, I had a lot more videos, but uh, fortunately earlier this year somebody hacked my account and erased every all of my videos. No kidding? 
Yeah, no kidding. I, I guess there was quite a uh, influx of people getting their accounts hacked somehow, and uh, it's been stopped now, But I, and I'm starting to slowly reload. But where I live, I, the Internet's not that great. So uh, to load a, a, like a 10-minute video takes me almost three days. Um, okay. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to be traveling. I, I've got a few primitive living classes I'm going to be teaching, so I'm going to be doing some traveling coming up. And uh, when I get to these better towns, I'll be uploading a lot more new videos. I see your channel right now. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and link to that. Um, I'm bookmarking it right now so I can easily produce a link in the show notes for that too. Okay, I appreciate it. Yeah, good. All right. Um, Let's say somebody is going out, they know they're going out, they're not going to find themselves stranded, they know they're going out in the wilderness. You're a big fan of 72-hour supplies, so am I. What should they, what are the essentials that they should be packing? Uh, the first and foremost is fire starting materials. Right. Uh, take, take, uh, take some, like, I've got a video coming out where I'm showing a, a fire starting kit that I put together, and a lot of... Uh, one of the big things that's easy to carry is is uh, the sisal rope, and cut little lengths of sisal rope, you know, two to three inches long that you can use to feather out and make uh, some tinder out of, so that you can easily start a fire. Uh, buy something like a magnesium fire starting stick, or buy a, a mm -hmm. uh, strike force, something that that you can use. Um, I also have another video. You know, everybody knows pretty much about taking cotton balls and soaking them in petroleum jelly. And starting a fire and a petroleum soaked cotton ball will last between five and seven seconds and here's a little sneak peek for you i actually have a video i i i have a second youtube channel called barefoot bush rat where i it's all about being barefoot and one of the things that i do to keep my feet conditioned is i use uh, a, a product called bag balm which was it's been it's over 100 years old and it's a lanolin based product that they use on cow's udders to keep them supple and soft from all the milking. They tend to get chafed and chapped. And I've been using bag balm on my feet for almost 20 years now. What's and the name of it? I took a, a cotton ball. It's called bag balm. Bag balm, okay. It, it, yeah, it, it orig you can find it at almost any feed store or pet supply store. Uh, it originated in Vermont. Uh, it's a it's a little green tin, and I, as a matter of fact, on my barefoot bushrat channel, uh, I have a, a video about care and conditioning of your feet, and it shows the bag balm on there. And um, I take that and I soak it into a, a cotton ball, and it burns for four minutes. Really, four minutes because the lanolin burns at a much lower temperature, so it'll burn longer. It doesn't burn off as fast as petroleum jelly. So I've been teaching people about using bag balm, taking it with them, like you can use it on your lips, like you do chapstick, you can use it for any kind of dry skin or sores or cracks. And I also show people how to take, carry these, petrol, these uh, bag balm soaked cotton balls instead of petroleum because they burn longer, which gives you much greater time to start a fire. Okay, I see your barefoot bush rat channel here as well. I'll link to that too. Okay. So fire, yeah, fire starting is the key. Is one is the first key thing. A good knife, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. You know, I, I always hear these debates about people saying, "Oh, you know, you got to spend two or three hundred dollars on a good survival knife." Well, I've been using Mora knives uh, of Sweden for uh, almost 15 years, and I first learned about them when I read Bushcraft by Morris Kahansky, 
And I saw what he was doing with this little four-inch blade knife. I mean, it was amazing. And I went and picked one up, and I've been using one ever since. So you don't have to. It's not the size of the tool. It's how you use the tool that really matters. So, you know, and, and a side note to that is when I wear my Mora, I can wear it in any city and not be hassled by any law enforcement because most of them don't even know what it is. You can't even really tell. Um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be a big Rambo-style knife or, or a big military-style combat survival knife. Um, it just needs to be a knife that you, you're well-versed at using, you know how to use, it's going to hold a, an edge well, and it, it, that can literally save your life just having that knife. Yeah. So fire starting, a knife, and some type of, of shelter material, like a tarp, or even if you do have a tent, take a tent and some kind of food. I mean, you know, take your food with you and your water. Those are the five key elements. And it's amazing what you can fit in a, in a well-packed backpack, for example. Oh, sure. You could, I mean, you could even take, uh, you know, they have those fanny packs with the bottle holders. Um, I'm not a big proponent of plastic at all. I don't, I don't like using plastics. And I, I used to use those plastic Nalgene bottles till I heard about all the problems with the BPA. Now I have the stainless steel bottles. And the thing I like about the stainless steel is they'll, they'll, if you have a fanny pack like that, I've had people put those fanny packs on, slide a couple of those bottles into each side of the fanny pack. They can put a tarp in there for shelter. They can easily fit fire starting materials. They can easily fit a couple days worth of food, uh, you know, even like uh, granola bars or, or energy bars or things of that nature. And you can, you can go out and practice your primitive skills and, you know, have, still have a good time and make sure that you have the essentials in case your primitive skills don't work. Just curious, what kind of pack do you use? Um, I, I generally don't carry a pack. I carry a bedroll. I carry a wool blanket where I, I carry all my supplies, and I have a little uh, sisal braided thong that I have around it that goes around my neck. So I don't really carry a, a backpack per se. Uh, I carry the bedroll, so I have my wool blanket with me. Interesting. Okay, so that serves two purposes. It's, um, the first purpose is it's carrying your supplies. The second, it's a blanket. Exactly, exactly. And, and wool, you know, you can't beat wool. I mean, I, I don't wear any, I don't advocate anybody wearing any synthetics like, uh, you know, Under Armour's big. Get rid of the Under Armour. Get you some silk long johns for wintertime or even colder weather in the summer. Uh, get some merino wool. You know, throw that crap out because num- there's two, there's a couple reasons. Number one, the first time you wear them, they stink because the body <laughs> perspires. Yep. You can never get rid of the smell. Number two, I know personally two guys that were good friends of mine that were out hunting. They were on a, an elk hunt out west, and they stripped down to their Under Armour long underwear, and there was a spark from the fire. One of the, the logs they put on the fire had popped and thrown a big spark, and they were sitting like next to each other eating. It threw a spark on each of them, and literally their Under Armour melted to their body and gave them third-degree burns over 95% of their body. No kidding. No kidding. It's all synthetic. It's all nylon and petroleum-based products. And they, what does petroleum do? It ignites. And it, yeah, it starts on fire. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, synthetic-based materials, are. I, I, I stay away from them. You know, I'm a big believer in wool and silk. Well, um, uh, yeah, my mom taught me when I was a kid. You know, I'm, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I think a lot of people who listen to the show know that. And it, during the cold weather, my mom was always you know, making us wear wool, as much wool as we could possibly, even wool socks. And a lot of people seem to be getting away from wool, and it's a shame. Yeah, they're getting into all the synthetics, you know, because that's what's that's what's becoming so prevalent out there is synthetics. And, you know, I mean, it's because it's, it's basically cheaper to produce because it's all made from petroleum products. 
but it's not any cheaper in price when you look at a lot of it. You know, that Under Armour is real expensive, you know, to to buy, and it doesn't it doesn't last like so. I mean, I've got a pair of silks that I've had for about seven eight years now, and they're still like brand new. You know. Mm-hmm. And and with the advent of merino wool, you know, you don't have all that itchy wool like you used to have, so that's not a, a real problem. Uh, there's even alpaca that you can get, which is supposedly warmer than wool, you know, sheep's wool. And the socks that I wear are buffalo hide from from buffalo hide uh, from the fur of a, a bison that are extremely warmer than the wool socks that I even had. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and and. It, it, uh, the felted wool is better than the knitted wool because the felted wool is tighter. It doesn't let as much air through. So I always have a, a wool blanket with me because uh, even when I've been in the desert in the summertime at night, it can get down into the 30s, which is, you know, cold. And I have my wool blanket that's kind of a blanket slash poncho I can put over my head and it keeps me perfectly warm as well as it carries uh, my water container and, um, you know, my extra my extra fire starting kit that I do take with me. Because uh, even though I teach this stuff, you know, I do want to come back. So I, I do even take fire starting materials when I go out. Well, sure, it makes sense. I mean, you know, why do it the hard way if you can take stuff with you that makes it easier? Right. I mean, generally, I, it's a, it's I, I my fire starting kit I haven't used uh, honestly in probably about three and a half four years because when I go out, I do find the materials as I'm going along the trail, and then I'll sit down and make my hand drill set or my fire plow set, and I'll use that. But you know, even even a, a guy that's been doing as long as I have, there are times when you can't get a fire started, so it's good to have your fire starting materials with you. Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, what else do you suggest that people start, you know, learning to do? I mean, you know, let's talk about suburban dwellers. I mean, I'm a suburban dweller. You know, what should I what should I be starting to, you know, perfect when it comes to uh, Primitive, primitive living or, or some type of wilderness survival? Well, you know, uh, I, I look back at Katrina. Um, ah, I, I knew you were going to bring that up. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was down in Louisiana and Mississippi after Katrina hit. Uh, I had seen it on the news, and uh, I had to go down there and see it for myself. And it was just amazing the amount of devastation and the lack of resources and skills that people had to mm-hmm. sustain and survive in that situation. Um, you know, for, for an urban dweller, I, my, my first thing is you need to have some kind of a backup system for when the crap hits the fan. Um, you know, get yourself like a little propane cooker or butane cooker and, and make sure you have either a, a bunch of those one-pound canisters or maybe a, 20, a couple of 20-pound canisters, something that you could use when your stove goes out. You could literally set this cooker on top of your stove if you're able to stay in your house, and you could cook on it. You know, have, have plenty of water stored up. Um, I have a friend that I set up. He lives uh, in southern Illinois, and I set him up with a rain catchment system on his house, and he's got literally 17 55-gallon drums of water stored be underneath the deck of his house in case it ever happens that they don't have water because they had a tornado many, many years ago that went through and they didn't have water for almost two weeks. Yeah. And you know what you're describing, sorry to interrupt, what you're describing is a way that learning about some type of primitive living skills, it it can pay off greatly even if you're a suburban dweller if something like Katrina comes through or a tornado or earthquake and all of a sudden resources are little too 
none to be had. Exactly, because you know I'm, I'm sure you've seen it as well as I have that when a when a disaster hits, the grocery stores are completely cleared out. Oh yeah. You know, gas stations that's non-existent. I mean, you're not going to get fuel because if there's an electricity, those pumps aren't running, and most of the time that fuel is sold out long before the the disaster ever hits. So. You need to have those resources as a backup. You know, uh, my vehicle, for example, I own a, a diesel-powered vehicle that runs on waste vegetable oil. Now, I can pull up to any waste vegetable oil uh, at any restaurant and go to the tank and pump pump fuel into my vehicle and run it. You know, you that's can't pretty do that with, cool. You, you can't do that with gasoline. You know, I literally can drive from Maine, from from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, on fifteen dollars in diesel fuel. No kidding. How many people with gas? Yeah, how many people with gas vehicles do you think could do that? <laughs> they couldn't go from one street in Portland, Maine, to the other side of town for some people. Exactly. You know, so th- those are the kind of things that you know a lot of people think it'll never happen to them. But I've seen the devastation of people that thought that, and then they're standing there going, "Well, I had no idea." Well, you know, or or look at let's look at Japan. What happened to Japan? And I got into a discussion with a guy um, shortly after that happened that was telling me, well, you know, they had regular drills for that, and they had regular drills for this. Well, let me tell you something. Back in the mid, from the mid-'80s to the mid-'90s, I was actually a paramedic and firefighter uh, for nine years and a rescue diver. And I'm going to tell you right now that no amount of training that you do actually prepares you for when a real disaster hits because – you cannot begin to comprehend the scale of a disaster like Katrina or like Japan until you're actually in it. So even though those people had regular drills and, and quote-unquote prepared for it, look how many of them that you saw in the news that were completely devastated and walking around dumbfounded because they weren't prepared for it. Exactly. You know, so, I mean, you can't ever fully prepare because you, unless you've been in a disaster like that, you really don't understand what it's all about. But if you are of the proper mindset and if you are uh, properly trained to deal with and maintain that mindset, it makes it a whole lot easier for you to sustain and to sustain your family if that disaster or when that disaster happens. Yeah, very good point. So those, those primitive living skills transitioning to even those of us who are urban or suburban dwellers, you just kind of gave some clear examples right there. Exactly. I, I, in fact, I showed a, a few people that were in Louisiana. I literally showed them how to make a bow drill set with materials they had around their house to start a fire so that they could cook literally in the middle of their living rooms of their houses where they were stranded to, to be able to cook over. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't always have to be in the wilderness. It could be in the city wilderness as well. <laughs> Sometimes the city can turn into a wilderness. Exactly, and that's exactly what happened. It turned into a, a barren wasteland for the most part with only a few remaining people that you know, didn't know what to do or how to survive or how to sustain. Well, I'm sure you're like most of us. You store food, right? Oh, sure I do. Um, now, out there in Montana, and knowing what you know, do you store a different type of food than most of us, or are you pretty much doing the same thing? Well, I, I'm not a. I don't eat processed food. I don't eat boxed or canned food. I I do literally can my own food. Um, I can a lot of pumpkin in the fall. Mm-hmm. I can a lot. I can a lot of apple butter and applesauce because there's a lot of a lot of good carbohydrates and protein in both of those. 
Um, you know, peanut butter, I make my own peanut butter. Um, I do, I smoke a lot of meat, I dry a lot of meat, and then I seal it. Uh, you know, I have the, the quote-unquote seal-a-meal. It's not actually that brand, but I have one of those where I can make, you know, I make my own jerky, I make my own dried meat, and I seal it. And I, at this point right now, I have about a three-and-a-half-year supply worth of food. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussions about, you know, bugging out or bugging in, you know, and I've heard you talk about it on a couple different podcasts. And my thing is, is if you have the resources available where you live, you know the terrain, you know the area, you know what's possible, why would you want to leave and go somewhere else unless you absolutely had to? Yeah, or unless you're being ordered to evacuate or something. You know, well, you know, even with that, I mean, um, I, I guess if I was in, in danger of losing my life, maybe I would evacuate. But if I have the resources and I know I can sustain where I am, I, I'm probably going to take the the lesser traveled road and stay where I am. You know, there is so much discussion about bugging out and bugging in. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the more I think about it, the more I really put my mind to that, I'm kind of in agreement with you. Why would you bug out if you, all your resources are in and around your property? Exactly. I mean, you know, you, you don't know anywhere better than where you live. You right. know what's – I mean, if you had to go out, you know, if, if you're the hunter-gatherer type like I am, if you need to hunt animals, if you need to gather wild edibles, if you need to gather medicinal plants. I mean, you may not be able to run to the pharmacy at the grocery store and pick up a bottle of aspirin, so you might need to go out and harvest some willow for aspirin, or you might need to go out and, and harvest some dandelion leaves for, you know, uh, a salad or, you know, whatever, cattail root or whatever the case might be. If you go to someplace you're unfamiliar with, how easy do you think it's going to be to find that stuff when you're in the, the state of mind that you're in from a natural disaster? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so, yeah, it makes sense to, you know, I hear that all the time about bugging out, and that would be the, the absolute last resort that I would take is to bug out. You know, if I've got my supplies and I've got everything I need, I'm staying put. Well, people like us who are common sense preppers, you know, we study this type of thing, and we, I'm always observant. I'm always looking at what's going on. I watch the news. You know, I watch the situations that people get themselves into. And I've been watching this for several years. I don't see a lot of situations where people have to bug out. Exactly. Uh, you know, Katrina, yeah, there, you know, there was people whose houses were under 12 foot of water, and they, they had nowhere to live. Right. So they really, they really had no choice at that point. But, but you know, barring that happening, which doesn't happen all the time, there's no reason to leave when you have everything right there. And, and if you're prudent and you, you know, I mean, if, that, if I was in that situation and I went through it once and I got caught with my pants down, so to speak, you'd never catch me that way again. You know, I go to Louisiana a lot on business and you'd be really surprised uh, how many people there still haven't got the message. Oh, I, I have no doubt. But... You know, I, I got to say this: the people that 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 happens to, I consider that population control. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I guess we won't go there. But that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to argue with your logic on that, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you've been through it once, you know, shame on you the first time. But the second time, you know, come on. I mean, that's yeah. that should never happen a second time, especially if you have a family. Yeah, exactly. Well, what it was oh, there's another question I was going to ask and it kind of slipped my mind. It was on, it was kind of on the subject of bugging in versus bugging out. Um ah 
while I'm trying to think of it, why don't you bail me out? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with with the with the bugging in, I mean, if if you really think about what your necessity, I mean, if you look at what you use on a day-to-day basis, if you really look at that and make a plan based on what you you and your family use on a daily basis, you should have no problem being able to stay put. Like I said, barring the fact that your house might be under 12 foot of water, or maybe a you know a huge chemical spill might kill you from the toxic gas, or you know a fire that's out of control, you know you should be able to make a simple plan that could sustain you for a minimum of six months. Now, you know most times when you have a disaster scenario, you know uh, utilities and whatnot are restored within a matter of maybe at the most two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. So if you have six months worth of supplies, you're still going to have a good stock left over after that disaster is abated but you know that that's a very simple way that I, that I teach people to do it and I, I have taught some people some urban survival I have you know gone to different places friends of mine that have asked me to come and do seminars and whatnot different places and I've showed people that it's very simple you know when you go grocery shopping buy you know a couple of gallons of, of water you know the, the, the bottled water and you can buy it for you know like 80 80 cents to maybe a dollar 20 a gallon you know, that's a very inexpensive resource that you can use. I buy a lot of that. You know, um, you know, you can you can go to an army surplus store. You can buy the 55 gallon food grade drums and fill them with water, and have them stockpiled like I did with my friend, so that if it, anything ever happens, you got plenty of water on hand. Matter of fact, you know, you could be the king of the water in your neighborhood, and maybe you know either give it out, you know, ration out to people or sell it if you need to, depending on what your situation is. Maybe you need a little extra cash. You could even sell some water, be cheaper than the water company and people would have the resource that they need. You know, so there's, there's very simple things, you know, you can set up a, uh, from your, from your gutters on your house. A lot of areas in the country have, have rain gutters. You could put a downspout that could connect to these barrels and, you know, in the summertime or spring when you have a lot of rain, if you're in, in an area that's so fortunate to have, you could fill up a couple of barrels in no time. Yeah, and well, and it's it's interesting that you say you, you talk about selling water. You know, I mean, there's there's billion dollar industries based on selling water. Oh, I know, and and that to me that's that is ludicrous that people go out and spend the kind of money they spend on bottled water. You know, I mean, I I'm not real big on drinking city water. Uh, I, I just I just saw a report and saw a video on on the the effects of the fluoridation in uh, city water supplies. So I'm not a big proponent of that. I, I do a lot of distillation of my drinking water, but I, I'm fortunate to have a spring-fed well by where I live so I can gather all the water I want. But, you know, you could even take water, boil it to boil away most of the, the chemicals that are in it and bottle it and save it in your house. You know, I mean, do that. You know, have your kids do it with you on the weekend or whatever and make it a little family project and store that water away. Put it in a nice, dark, cool place. That water will last you forever. How do you store water? I, I I actually have some metal drums that I I got years ago that are stainless steel lined, um, and I paid dearly for them. But I've got nine of them, and they're all filled with water. How much does each one hold? Fifty-five gallons. Okay, wow. So yep. you've got uh, five hundred gallons of water. Exactly, exactly. And my well, the shower setup that I have for where I live is a fifty-five gallon drum that I built on a stand that's at about a 20-degree angle with a spigot that comes off the one end, and it, it comes off the rain gutter, fills up the barrel, and I have a, a backup shower when I need it. 
Okay, so you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you're, you're living out in the mountains in western Montana. Yes. How long have you been out there? Uh, I've been living out west um, for the last, uh, let's see, 13 years. And I've lived uh, in different areas. Uh, one of the reasons that I do that is because I want to, I, I, I push myself to find my weaknesses and make them stronger and to strengthen my strong points. And as I said earlier, I, I actually, I grew up in the eastern uh, woodlands and boreal forest of uh, the Midwest. And when I was eight years old, um, we had a little 13-inch black and white Magnavox TV, and I saw a picture. It was actually, <laughs> actually for Coors Beer. And I saw the Rocky Mountains, and I pointed to the TV, and I said to my mom, that's where I want to live. And that, that dream never died. I mean, I, I, I spent every waking hour in the woods uh, around our house, which weren't as great as what they are out here. But, you know, I was always fascinated with what was out there, you know, the bugs and the different plants and the trees and the smells and just, you know, all of it really I connected with it from a very young age. And um, when I was old enough, I moved out west, and I've lived in Wyoming, I've lived in Montana, Idaho, I even spent a year in Alaska. And I, I really uh, do it because I, I, I prefer, it's where I prefer to live. Uh, I'm not yeah. a city person at all. And like I said, it really helps me to refine what I teach. I mean, I, my saying is I, I teach what I live and I live what I teach. Well, and that's and, the best kind. Those are the best kinds of instructors. Yeah, I, I know a lot of guys that live in the city in these nice McMansions, you know, drive Escalades and this, and they go out on the weekend and teach survival. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to learn survival from somebody, I think I'd rather learn it from somebody that lives what they do rather than that just does it for the weekend. Yeah, of course. You know, so, um, I, yeah, I, I, matter of fact, back in the mid-2000s, I went, I, uh, I used to, I teach a lot in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. And I found a cave that was 17 miles from town, and I actually lived two summers and one winter in this cave in the Wind River Range. And I did it because I wanted to see if I could. And it was, I mean, it was great. You know, it was just absolutely the best time of my life. But it was also the most trying time of my life because it was at a point where I was, you know, really completely immersing myself in the primitive living uh, as far as doing it 24-7, 365. Um, and I, I, you know, I just... Absolutely, it's it's helped me grow so much as not only a primitive person, primitive living person, but also as a primitive living instructor. Do you run into any problems with uh, wild animals when you do that? Um, actually, I in in thirty years of I, I started my primitive living schools back in nineteen eighty two. So this year is my thirtieth year of running it. I've only had one encounter with a grizzly bear. And that was in Yellowstone National Park and out of all the years of uh, being out in the backcountry. Of course it would be in Yellowstone National Park. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I love Yellowstone. It's my favorite park, and I spend a great deal of my time when I'm not teaching in the backcountry exploring because there are so many areas that humans have never been in Yellowstone. Um, and, yeah, there was only one time that I came across a – it was a boar, uh, and I think it was because he was an older boar. And he was being forced out of his feeding area. Yeah. But uh, I was able to abate that situation and, and not really have a serious confrontation. But that's the only time I've ever had any problem. In, in how many years? Uh, 30 years. See, I think it's a fallacy. I think a lot of people have this notion that they're going to have some problems with wild animals. And that seems to get sensationalized a lot. But you seem to kind of 
have a different take on that? Well, you know, for one thing, you know, it's always amazed me how people will walk down the streets of New York and they're blind and oblivious to what is going on around them. And one of my favorite sayings that I tell people is, the, the animals in the city are far more dangerous than those in the woods. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> because, I, you know, when I see a grizzly bear or if I see a mountain lion, I know what they're capable of doing to me. And I know what I need to do to avoid that situation. I walk down the streets of Chicago or New York or any place like that. They're all camouflaged. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what they're going to do or who's going to do it. So, you know, people go out with this innate sense of fear of animals. I mean, they, they don't, you know, they don't walk around saying it, but you can tell, like when I take people out, uh, especially people that are, that are hardcore city dwellers and I take them out in the woods and I take them 15 miles into a wilderness area where there's no roads, there's no telephone or cell, cell service. There's no, you know, convenience store or Walmart or anything like that. They literally have this, you know, big bug eyed look like, Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of my courses run anywhere from three to nine days, but a majority of my courses are the five day courses. And by the fifth day, their attitude is completely changed because I show them that you can actually be comfortable out in the woods. It's not a place to fear, you know, and, and again, that's what you see a lot of, especially on TV shows that, um, you know, Oh my God, you know, you're going in the woods and you know, you need to be really prepared or you could die, which to a point is true. But when people go out with that mindset, they're more likely to find themselves in a bad situation than if they go out with the mindset that really it's no different than walking through the park at home. I mean, Absolutely. realistically, you know, if, but I, for some reason, there's that sense of, that sense of fear you know, and, and I, I always get people that come out with these big, like 6,400 cubic inch backpacks full of battery heated socks and, you know, all this, all this high tech gear and everything. And, and when they show up, I mean, I, and I, I tell them when they come out, you you know, this is what you're taking, but they always show up with all their gear. They're completely in fear of going out with nothing more than a knife, bedroll and water container. They absolutely <laughs> think there's no way they could ever do that. For five days without having, you know, their roll of toilet paper and their Time magazine and, you know, their 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 heated comforter and heated socks and all this other stuff. And by the end of the fifth day, they go, I never thought I could do this, but I now know that I don't need all that stuff to have a good time in the woods. Yeah, some of the myths that some people believe are just amazing. Oh, and, and, and it's, you know, there's so many people, especially on the Internet, that just propagate that and make people believe that so much more. You know, and it just amazes me. I mean, I, I've done a lot of corporate stuff with, with big corporations where I've taken their employees out on corporate retreats and team building uh, type excursions, doing the primitive living and whatnot, building shelters together and one team building a fire together. And, you know, and, and they all thought that, you know, they all come out with their their high tech Gore-Tex gear and, you know, their fancy, you know, thousand dollar boots and all this other stuff. And then they realized I didn't need all this, you know. I mean, really, I can. If you can do it in shorts and bare feet, yeah, I don't think I really need all this gear. One last question before we wrap this up: Does it seem to you that the internet is becoming the new Hollywood? Oh, definitely. 
Definitely. Um, you know, you know, it, we we like we like to poke fun at Hollywood. We like to poke fun at the movies and TV because the movies and TV tells us things that are that are somewhat sensationalized and not always true. But the internet seems to be going that way too. Oh, absolutely. Because you know, people people are looking for their fifteen minutes of fame, and <laughs> you know, I, I get a lot of people on my YouTube channel that. Um, you know, I, I show tidbits of what's in my Living Wild video book. I, I mm. and it's kind of you know they're kind of teasers to get people interested in buying it. And you know, I've sold a lot of a lot of the video books that way. And people are always saying, well, why aren't you showing what so and so shows, or why aren't you showing what this guy shows, or that guy showed us this? Well, you know, a lot of what I see on there, um, you know, it's like if you want to believe it, well, that's great, but I wouldn't base your survival on what you're seeing a lot of on YouTube. <laughs> or not just YouTube, but what you read on forums and things like that. Oh, I, yeah, I, I've been invited to join quite a few of the survival forums. And, you know, I, one of the things I like about yours is because you, you keep it common sense and realistic. You know, a lot of them, there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks, so to speak, posting all kinds of theoretical knowledge. But I know I, I, I you know I've been doing this long enough that I know what's real and what's not and what's you know what the people are posting if it's true or not, and I see so much of the that of that quote unquote armchair quarterback philosophy that, and people believe it they fall into it and believe it and it's just absolutely ridiculous. What's even worse than believing it is when they act upon it and they go purchase a bunch of supplies, acting upon you know what they what they read or hear. Right, right. And I, I even know some guys that are on there that the, their channels have become so commercialized and they have they actually have sponsors on YouTube. You know, they, they get gear and test it for sponsorship. You know, it's like, really, I mean, this, you know, this is this is YouTube. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great to have some fun. And, and I hope that what I'm showing is educational to people and they really get something out of it. But I'm not doing it because I'm hoping to become some, you know, big Hollywood celebrity or star or anything. I'm doing it because I think it's, it's, uh, you know, knowledge that is useful to pass along to people. And like I say, I'm doing it from a point of, I live this. So I'm trying to help others and teach others what I live and what I know actually works. Yeah. Well, good. We've kind of hit the time limit. This has been fantastic. And, uh, I really appreciate it. You, you coming on white bear. This is, this is great. You know, before we hang up and, and conclude this, one more time, give out your website address, your your YouTube channel, and kind of tease us a little bit about what's coming out that you're that you're putting out on video. Well, the website is PLSS, which stands for Primitive Living Skills School, PLSS LivingWild.webs.com. Okay. Uh, the YouTube channel, of course, is YouTube.com slash Primitive Living. And I also have my YouTube channel uh, slash Barefoot Bush Rat. Okay. Um, and I have I have a you know I'm I'm refilming and re-editing all of my Living Wild video book because I'm now shooting it all in high def uh, because I think it it shows a little more clarity in what I'm showing people and, and trying to teach them, and that will be coming out. That's going to be going uh, to press, so to speak, uh, next month. So in the next four to five weeks, it will be available for people to purchase. Um, you know the the all, either one chapter or all eleven chapters, uh, whatever they want to do. 
and also on my on my website, there's my tribal gatherings, um, and you know those are the the courses that I teach, and I urge people to go to my tribal gatherings page and take a look at what I have to offer in the way of classes, and uh, you know I, I think people will be interested because uh, again I, I live what I teach and I teach what I live uh, I'm not just doing this on the weekend you know I'm I'm <laughs> not a CP I'm not a CPA during the week or anything like that you know I um, this isn't your I, hobby it's your life it, yeah this is my life you know this this is what I enjoy doing uh, I enjoy being around people like-minded people and taking them out and and showing them what's actually out there and that the, the woods are not as scary a place as they may think they are well, you've really educated me, and I know that there are going to be a lot of people who listen to this that are going to get a lot out of it. And so I want to plant a seed with you. Um, in a few weeks, are you willing to do part two? Sure, sure. Okay. I'll be in contact with you by email because I'm sure there's going to be people who are going to listen to it. There'll be questions. They'll post it on the forum and things like that. So let's watch that thread and see what comes up, and then let's do a part two in a few weeks. Okay, and uh, when the when the video book comes out, uh, you know I'll let you know about it. And uh, what I'll do is, people that are subscribers for the uh, uh, today's survival forum, uh, I will give them a ten percent discount. Nice, nice. All right. So there's an incentive for, if you're listening to this show. If you're not a member of the forum, join so you can get a ten percent discount on his material. Yeah, I, I, that's you know that's a great thing, and I'm going to post a link on my website uh, to the to. to today's survival website and the forum because I, I you know I, like I said I've been asked to do a lot of forums you know be on them but uh, I've turned all of them down I didn't like the content or the way that that things were going on there but I really do like uh, your forum and the way it's set up uh, and a lot of the topics well I appreciate that it's very much a pleasure it's a it's a privilege from you know to, for me to hear you say that and uh, thanks again for your time I very much appreciate it uh, I'm glad to be on here. You said you wanted to get out and do more primitive in, uh, wilderness, so you know, you'll have to come to one of my uh, courses and experience it for yourself. Well, guess what? There is a very good chance, I'm, I'm not going to make an official announcement because it's not finalized, but there's a very good chance I might be coming to Montana for another reason. Oh, okay. Um, not permanently, but for several days. I might be making a visit to Montana this summer. So if that works out... I, I may take a side trip and come over and say hello. Sounds good. Be glad to have you. White Bear, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right, Bob. It was great talking to you, and I appreciate you having me on. You too. Take care. All right, you too. Mr. White Bear, thank you very much for that excellent interview. Please check out his YouTube channel. We mentioned the address a couple of times. Check out his YouTube and check out his website. And he's also on the forum he signed up for the forum and got an account, so I'll start a link on the forum about this episode, and I'll link to his website, and I'll link to his YouTube channel so that you can see that. And by the way, if you're not a member of our forum, please consider joining today's Survival Show Forum. Send me an email, please. If you join, please send me an email at bob at todayssurvival.com. I'm trying to keep spammers out, so I'm trying to personally approve everybody who joins the forum. I know that's a little cumbersome. I know it takes a little longer, but I tell you what, your benefit is, is we don't get a whole bunch of spammers infiltrating our forum. And uh, even my spam blocking software has not been blocking all of them. So I just go to where I check it once or twice a day. And I look to see if there's anybody waiting for approval for an account. 
So again, send me an email. Say, hey, Bob, guess what? I signed up for your form. I'd like approval. Bob at todayssurvival.com. Consider supporting my show if you like what I do on this show. If you like the information that I give you, consider supporting it. My Survival Champions Club podcast. Check it out. You can get both versions for only 20 bucks. It helps support my show. Go to todayssurvival.com. Look at my website for the survival. Look at the link for the Survival Champions Club podcast. You'll see what it's all about. You'll see the information that we cover. It's information I've never covered on this show before. And it's your way to help support my show. I don't have sponsors on this show for a reason. It's a listener-supported podcast. I don't want you to have to listen to a bunch of commercials all the time from sponsors. So it's a listener-supported podcast. If you can find it in your heart to do that, it's a small investment. And I give you in return a lot of good, excellent survival and preparedness information. Go to www.todayssurvival.com. Click the Survival Champions Club podcast. Thanks again, folks. I appreciate you tuning in and listening to this interview. My name is Bob Main. You've just listened to another episode of Today's Survival Show. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are I'll catch you next week bye bye